passage that we read together from Corinthians, referencing both the Old Testament people and, of course, the call upon the life of believers today, that we are the Lord's people. And he calls us to be separate in some form. Now, you remember his people in the Old Testament, they were really separate. They weren't to intermarry. They weren't to hang out uh, with uh, the, the, the uh, pagans, the idol worshipers. But, but, gee, for some reason, it just looked so enticing that they kept leaving the God who had done all these things for them and protected them and guided them and, and provided for them and went and searched after things made of stone and wood, things made of their own hands and even to the point of sacrificing their own children to those things in the hopes that that chunk of wood or that piece of stone would somehow do a better job at caring for them than the one that had already and that they had seen and things had been manifest in their lives. Everything from the parting of the sea to the provision of manna to the uh, conquering of uh, unconquerable nations through the hand of the Lord. And he says, uh, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Those defilements of body and spirit would be anything that clings to us. And you know, we all have our friends, those old sins that we love that just cling to us, like the dog, the little dog that bites your, you know, pant leg and you're dragging it across the floor, it won't let go. Sometimes sins are hanging on to us and unfortunately sometimes we're hanging on to them as well. So the Lord says, get rid of those things, okay? They defile you. You want to pursue holiness and righteousness so that we can be made complete in the Lord. So let's go to him now in prayer. Lord, in the past, you made your dwelling within the midst of your people. They built a structure for you, and you came in your glory and dwelt among them. Today, Lord, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, you dwell within each believer. It's not just in this building, but it is within the heart of every believer, for we are members of the body of Christ, part of that body of Christ that is spread out through all of this world those whom you've called and chosen, those whose lives have been changed, those in whom the Holy Spirit resides, those who know your name and are called for your purposes and your glory. Lord, you call us as well to remove those things from our lives that affect us, that, that drag us away from you, those things of the old life that we are no longer bound to. Chains of sin no longer hold us. Oh, sin is all around us, and and there are plenty of temptations. But we are not slaves to that any longer. For when Christ lives within us, we are bondservants to him, those who willingly give all of ourselves to him. Lord, we know it's a struggle. We know there are good days and bad days in that pursuit of holiness and righteousness. 
So Lord, we pray that our eyes would be open to those things and we would learn. We would learn to trust you more and more in our walk with you. That we would see the days where you're protecting us and the days that you're guiding us as well as the days that we fail you and, and just perform pitifully in the life of the, as, as, a, as a believer. But Lord, you have called us to something that is greater than ourselves. You've called us to holiness. You've called us to a life that is lived for your glory. So Lord, we pray that whether we're at school or whether we're at home, whether we're playing with our friends or whether we're at work or whether we're working in the yard or wherever we would be, we would understand this call in our lives. That we're called to be different. There's something about us that the world does not have within them. The presence of Christ within us. The power of the Holy Spirit within us. That that presence and the way that we live out this grace that you've given us and the way that we speak about things and our attitude and all that we are would be clear demonstrations of the grace that you have given to us. That the world may know of the things of Christ. So, Lord, we come to you today, and we each have our own burdens and struggles that we have had through this week, our own things that we have borne upon our shoulders. We pray that in the the coming moments, Lord, we might know your peace, we might know your graciousness, that we might hear your voice within our minds and within our hearts as it speaks to us from your word that we would know this call upon our lives, that we would know your grace and your strength to bear us up no matter what we face. So, Lord, we come to you today in the name of our Lord and Savior, the one who has done this work, the one who has made the sacrifice for us, that we might come right to the throne of grace today. We pray together that prayer which he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord has made a way for us to come into his presence and he has gifted us with many things. So I invite the ushers to come that we might return to his work some of what he has blessed us with.
your care and in your mercy and provision. You have given us many things, things that we may use for your purposes and your glory. We care for ourselves in this world, but we understand our ultimate provision comes from you. So, Lord, we give you thanks for this. We pray that these things might be used, that others would know this truth, that the kingdom of God would go forward, and that the things of Christ would be proclaimed in what we say, demonstrated in our lives, lived out for all that we come in contact with. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated.
Let's open to Jude, chapter 8, verse 8. morning we'll read, we're just going to deal with verse 8. Uh, let's stand and, and I'll read all verse eight, all eight verses <clears throat> because uh, verse 8 refers back to some of the things that have happened previously. So it'll be important for us to get the whole context here. So let me pray. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come down upon us and provide for us understanding, that our eyes and hearts would be open to your word. That we would read them not with human eyes, Lord, but with eyes that are enabled by you. And understand them with the heart that is un- given your understanding. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered. Now this is why you need to contend earnestly. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all these things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in the same manner, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. You'll notice that in the same manner refers back to what the three examples he had just given, and then these men, which refers all the way back to verse 4, and we'll see that more in just a moment. All right, now if I say the phrase to you, you are a very bad man, does that strike any chords in your minds? Well, as, as I looked at it and, and heard it as from my own lips, I thought uh, that we divide kind of probably into two groups that might understand that. You're a very bad man. Some of us will understand it as the words from Dorothy to the Wizard of Oz. When the wizard is revealed to be a fraud, she goes, you're a very bad man. Okay? And the other group will remember this guy from where? Seinfeld, you are a very bad man. Okay? That's Babu from Seinfeld. Now, so if you're a Seinfeld fan, they, hopefully you got the imitation there. Okay? Uh, okay, but throughout history, there have been a plethora of bad men. I mean, uh, just gobs and gobs of bad men, and I picked out some of the best, the most choicest, choicest of bad men. 
Uh, you know, we've got some from, from even in our, our lifetimes. We've got Hitler and Mussolini and Mao and bin Laden. You got the, you go back into history. You've got, uh, Vlad the Impaler. You've got Pol Plot, Pol Plot. You've got Stalin, Attila the Hun, Robespierre. Uh, just, 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 just a couple. Okay. Now, if you think for a moment that there weren't any bad women, I happen to have a bad women's list as well. Okay. Cleopatra, Agrippina, Mary Tudor, that'd be Bloody Mary, Catherine de' Medici, the Black Queen, Marie Antoinette, and Tsitsi, the Dragon Empress of China. These were some of the top lists of the bad women. So bad is spread out across the sexes, okay? You've got bad men and bad women. What puts somebody in the bad category? Well, um, uh, murder, assassination, carnage, uh, uh, all around bad things like that. That kind of puts you on this list as far as being a really or a very bad person. Well, as we'll see, bad kind of fluctuates in history. Some people are bad and now and they may not have been so bad later or they were bad then and not so bad now, but we're pretty sure that mass murder is bad no matter when it happens. Okay. Now, when we come to Jude and we find some very bad men, very bad men. Verse 8, yet in the same manner, and as I said, it, it, you'll see more of this in just a moment, this refers back to the three examples that we have just seen, and also forward to verse 11, where he gives three more examples of the same type of thing. Yet in the same manner, these men, and these men refers back to verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. These are the false teachers, those who desire to destroy the church, to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ, to lead people away from Christ. And so often they do so by sounding very much like Christians, very much, much like uh, Orthodox people, except for a couple areas. And once they have you hooked into these things, then they begin to teach the wrong things and off you go into error. And they love that. They love to pull people away from Christ. Jude makes it very simple. He describes these people in three ways. They defy the flesh, they reject authority, and they blasphemy the glorious ones. And he ties them to the three illustrations of Israelites, of angels, and to the actions in Sodom and Gomorrah, as he says, yet in the same manner. And he also says, by dreaming, by dreaming, or relying upon dreams... Now, apparently, the false teachers that are listed here and had come into the church that Jude is writing to in particular, the group of believers, apparently these false prophets and false teachers were claiming to have dreams, dreams that were giving them this new revelation from the Lord. So they would go and they would have these dreams at night, and this new message for the Lord would come, would come out of their mouths the next day, bringing it or teaching it to the congregation. Now, we'll look at this in particular in just a moment. Now, one of the commentators that I read on, on this passage, when it came to this, he likened these false teachers to today's terrorists. Terrorists who would blend in with society, whether they get on a plane or a bus or they get in the midst of a crowd, they want to blend in, but they are there bent on destruction. They have a particular purpose, and that is to destroy those things around them, and they don't particularly care if they destroy themselves. Well, why don't they care if they destroy themselves? Go back to verse 4 once again. 
For certain persons, as these very bad men, have crept in unnoticed. They seem to be like everybody else. But they have been marked out long beforehand for condemnation. So they are like these terrorists in the sense that their destruction is assured. And they really don't care about it. They're there to destroy the things around them. So these people who understand their purposes that they are there to destroy within the church, don't particularly care about their own destruction because it has been foretold and acknowledged. Let's turn back a couple pages to Second Peter chapter 2. And remember, Peter is writing about the false prophets to come, and Jude is writing about the false prophets who are already here. Okay, so Jude is writing in the present, and Peter is saying, watch out, they are coming, but they are referencing the same group of people. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people. Now he's talking about a particular group here, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now remember, if you want to destroy a group, You don't come in and say the first thing we're going to do is get rid of these things that you have held on to for thousands of years and have meant the world to you. They are going to secretly and on the, on the, what's the, on the low, low, they're going to sneak them in. Okay, so they come in unnoticed. And before you know it, you begin to question certain things that you have held as gospel truth for all your life. And you were taught, well, you know, the virgin birth is not really that important. So let's look and understand why it's really not that important. Now, over time, if that creeps in, then you begin to say in your normal conversation, specifically around Christmas time or things like that, you might go, well, I know we talk about the virgin birth, but it's really not that important. It is crucial. It is crucial. It is one of those doctrines that you cannot pitch out as an example. But you don't stand up on the first day if you want to destroy a group and say, we're getting rid of the virgin birth. That's not how you do it. You slide in unnoticed. You start slowly and you begin to build these things up. And that's the danger that Peter is warning about. That's the danger Jude is talking about. So let's continue in Second Peter 2 verse 1. Uh, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, Bringing, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Okay, Their destruction has been planned out and foretold. It's not like the, they catch the Lord unaware of these things. The Lord is up in his heaven sitting there on the throne, and goes, where'd those guys come from? How'd they get into the church? He knew, okay? He knows all things. He knows they're coming. He sends his apostles to warn us of them, and he says their destruction is assured. And I have come across, unfortunately, too many people like this in my life. Um, perhaps because of the you know, this, this is my professional world, this is my world of calling and my world of life. So I know plenty of pastors, plenty of seminary professors who fit this category. They, they somehow in their uh, earnest desire work feverishly to explain away the things of Christ, feverishly to explain away such things like the 
virgin birth or the resurrection. Uh, we understand it to be a spiritual resurrection of Christ. That, that we understand that bodies don't come out of the grave. So you have to come up with a different explanation. Why? Because they don't believe. They do not put themselves under the authority of the word that says the same body that went in the grave came out of the grave. It was a bodily resurrection. And I've just seen too many people in my life try to explain these things away. And, and they're not the worst people. Remember last week? These people who attempt to infiltrate and teach false things are not the worst people. Remember the judgment that comes upon Capernaum? And what did Capernaum do? They just ignored Jesus. Okay, There, miracles were done in Capernaum. The dead were raised. The sick were healed. The blind were given sight. And what did the people of Capernaum do? Well, so what? They had Jesus in their midst and they did not believe. They had miracles done right before them. They did not believe. Judgment will be worse upon them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah that had evidence sin everywhere. The sin of Capernaum was, they didn't care. They didn't care about Jesus. So let's go back to Jude and look first at the dreams. Okay? These, these in the same manner, these men also by dreaming... Well, they were dreamers. Now, the normal Greek word for dream is onar, but that word is not used here. Now, the normal Greek word onar means that they were dreaming. You know what happens? You have pizza at 9 o'clock at night with anchovies and onions and peppers, and you have bad dreams, okay? Or you have some dreams. They're, they're vivid. Maybe you got the bugs crawling all, all over you. Every once in a while, I get one of those dreams where I wake up and I'm, I'm going like this, you know, and, and I just get the bugs off me. And then I go, oh, they're not here, okay? But it's just a dream. That's the normal dream. But that is not the word that is used here. It is a different word that is used here in Jude that is only used one other place in the entire New Testament, and that is in Acts chapter 2, where Peter is talking about, where he's, he's quoting Joel chapter 2. Okay, and, and let me read to you Joel chapter 2. And it shall be in the last days, I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. These are not pizza dreams. These are revelatory dreams. These are dreams from the Lord that tells them what the Lord is going to be doing and why they should be ready because these, these dreams and this prophecy from Joel speak specifically to the end times. Okay? Let's make this the short version. You come to me and say, Randa had a dream. I think it's from the Lord, and we need to do this. Okay? And I say, great. The first thing we do is we check the word. Does that dream match what Scripture says? Or are you coming to me and saying, the Lord has given me a special dream that we need to do something other than what Scripture says? If you do that, that's a problem. Okay? That's what was happening here in Jude. These men were saying we had dreams and they are telling us to do something other than what we know the Lord has told us to do. If you come to me and say, Randy, I had a dream and we look in scripture and it, it simply says this is what we should do and your dream is saying this is what we should do. Maybe you're, you say, uh, Randy, I had a dream that I need to become a missionary. Well, let's look in scripture and see if, 
if that is confirmed in Scripture. You may not find your name written there, but you'll find that there is a call and that we are to take the gospel into all the world. Now let's look for confirmation. Does the Lord confirm it somewhere? Does he open the doors? Does he provide the means? All of these things. But see, here in Jude, these men were having dreams. And and the dreams were, I've got new knowledge from the Lord. Okay, it is secret knowledge. Now the reason you don't have it and I have it is because it's secret. And if you were as spiritual as me, I'm kind of reading into it, then you'd get dreams too. So you see the danger that Jude is facing here. And, and besides, these guys can't say, I got new knowledge from the Lord, so I think this is what we should do, or I feel this is what we should do. No, no, they have to validate and says the Lord has come to me in a dream. Now, how can you argue with that, Right? How can you say, you didn't have that dream? The guy goes, I had that dream. So he is trying to convince them to do something the Lord does not want them to do, has not taught them to do, the apostles has not taught them to do, and he is saying, he's given me, God has given me new knowledge through this dream. Okay? Now, 1 Timothy 4 says, the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will fall away from faith because they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars who are seared in their conscience. This is a warning for us for those who come and say, I've got special or secret knowledge from the Lord. Okay? You can also see that in the homework. Jeremiah 23 talks about that. So, let's look at their particular sins, which seem to be very simple and straightforward. Now, Jude is, we may not be able to see it here, or it doesn't jump out at us, but Jude is very structured, because he wants us to remember this. From verse 5 through verse 11, he gives us three groupings of three things. So, we were taught in seminary 20 years ago that you should have a sermon with three points, because that's what people can remember. So when I got my doctorate and I graduated and I went to the, to the service, the guy had 15 points, okay? And I don't remember any of them, frankly, okay? But, but 15 points, that's, that's a lot of points. He gives us three points, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, Israel, angels, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Then he comes and reiterates these points in reverse order in verse 8. Defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic majesties and then verse 11 he gives us three again gone the way of Cain they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah okay Jude gives us these threes because he wants us to remember this stuff okay these are the dangers here's what has happened in the past this is what they will do right now so he warns us of these things so let's look at these in particular um these characteristics, they defile the flesh, immorality, they reject authority, that's insubordination, they revile angelic majesties, that is irreverence for our Heavenly Father. Okay? So they defile the flesh. This word means this flesh. Okay? It's not talking about uh, Romans 7 that talks about the defilement of the flesh in our nature. He is speaking specifically about This flesh on our body, that's the word that is used. And the word defiled comes from the Greek word, which means to stain 
or to die, as in clothing. So if you come with a white shirt and you spill coffee on it, you have, dis- you have stained or defiled the shirt. Okay, that's why they make ties, isn't it, guys? So we can cover it uh, with a tie. Well, when you tie these words of the flesh and to stain or to pollute or to corrupt in Scripture, they're talking about sexually. So they have corrupted themselves, these false teachers, in an immoral fashion. Now, it may not be publicly visible, but the immorality of a false teacher is there, and sooner or later it's going to come out. Look at Jude 19. These are the ones who cause divisions. They are worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. So you see Spirit in in, uh, the New American Standard is a capital S. That's the Holy Spirit. They are devoid of the Spirit. They have no process of salvation that has gone on in their persons through the work of the Spirit. They have no ongoing work of sanctification empowered by the Holy Spirit. They do not, therefore, seek to flee from sin because they are not guided by the Spirit. In fact, they desire to be more and more involved in sin. Okay? They claim to be virtuous. They may claim to be righteous. They may wear the right clothes. They may hold the right positions. But they love lust, and they love darkness, and they hate the light. Just like John 3 says. They're like Israel committing adultery at the foot of Mount Sinai when they worshipped the golden calf. They're like the angels coming down and and taking human form in Genesis chapter 6. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah and their sinful actions in Genesis 19. They may mask it for a while, but eventually their life will reveal their immorality. Go back to 2 Peter once again. Chapter 2, a little bit further on in that same, same chapter. Remember, Peter is saying these people are coming, and here's what he says about them. Chapter 2, 2 Peter 2, verse 10. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. They despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Okay, now jump to verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Okay, remember the words of Galatians chapter 5. The deeds of the flesh are immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's where it all starts. Israel in the wilderness Okay, it was for it, that's why they were left in the wilderness because of their immorality, the immorality of the angels. That's why they're bound in those chains in the utter darkness until the day of judgment. And for immorality, Sodom and Gomorrah was were destroyed. So first off, these false teachers defile the body, defile the flesh. Secondly, they reject authority. Now. Obviously, if I'm going to live an immoral lifestyle, then I can't have any moral authority in my life. Okay? I can't have somebody telling me what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Because then I would submit myself to someone else's authority. So I have to reject this authority in order to justify the way that I want to live. 
Now, politically speaking, if you reject all authority, we degrade into anarchy, where everybody is their own master and their own law unto themselves. And then we have chaos. In our society, we have seen laws changed over the years, reflecting a change of morals. Okay? If people scream loudly enough about certain issues that they want to pursue or involve themselves with, then we can change society by changing the laws, and what used to be wrong is now right. Uh, when I was growing up, you could be arrested for smoking marijuana everywhere. Now you can go to certain states, and they have Colorado, and they have a big smoke in or something. Everybody got stoned because it's legal now. You can go to other places, and it's legal. Certain other places, it's still illegal, but people have screamed loud enough, and laws have been changed. So what used to be illegal is now legal. What used to be wrong is now considered Okay, or even right. Uh, what about euthanasia? What used to be wrong, what used to be considered flat-out killing people, is now a compassionate way because we have redefined what is wrong and what is right. Okay? We take something that is already established. That's what Jude is saying here when he talks about they reject something. They reject something that has been established and there is no starting date for its establishment. So what the Greek word means really is it has always been that way. Okay, Not in the sense that, well, we've never done it that way before. It's always been this way. Okay, It has always been that way because that's the way God has created it. This has always been right and this has always been wrong. And these people reject what God has said is right and wrong. Okay? They reject the lordship of God. They reject the lordship of Christ. Verse 8, they reject authority. The authority that they reject, that word in the Greek has the same root as kurios. Kurios means lord, as in the, the verse curie, if you've ever sung that, Okay, so what they are rejecting specifically is the lordship of Christ. Because if you're going to put yourself under the lordship of Christ, there are expectations in the way that you will live. There are expectations concerning your obedience. Remember verse 4, it says, They deny our only master and lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how you view the lordship of Christ in your life. I view it as a blessing, that I might live under his authority, that he would think his love would be extended to me and call me to live under his authority. But these people do not submit to the lordship of Christ. They have their own theology, their own views, um, spun out of their own dreams, so they justify it in that way. And every time that you would hear a Bible teacher or a theologian say that the Bible isn't true or Jesus wasn't who he said he was or didn't do what he did or, or espouse some ridiculous opinion of their own, they are rejecting the lordship of Christ. They are rejecting the authority of Scripture. You know, Scripture doesn't really mean what you think it means. So they are basically saying we can get rid of this page and tear it out because we reject God's authority as it is written there in our lives under that portion. Let's go to the last one. 
Number three, they revile angelic majesties. Now, the word revile there is simple and straightforward. It's blasphemy. That's the Greek word. And then there's that little phrase, angelic majesties. That word is doxus, from which we get the word doxology from. Okay? Now, this is a strange word to put here. And doxus means glory. So what they literally says is they blasphemy glories. They blasphemy glories. And what we can see from the context is it refers to the glories of God, the glories of Christ. They blasphemy our Heavenly Father. They blasphemy our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to blasphemy means to curse what is sacred. So any teaching that takes away from their authority, besmirches their character, or the glories of our God is blasphemy. So they are blasphemers. And when you look more closely at them, no matter what they claim, the fact of the matter is they do not have secret knowledge. Why? One last passage, Hebrews chapter 1. Go back a few pages to that. They do not have secret knowledge. They do not have these dreams that come from the Lord to give them something other than what Scripture has revealed to us, something other than, in that time, the teaching of the apostles to cling to and to follow and the teachings of Jesus. That's all that we have. And that is enough, I want to tell you. We don't have to have any new stuff because the stuff we got is sufficient. Hebrews chapter 1. Why is it sufficient? Because that's what God says it is. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, that's how he has done it in the past, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, that is the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of the Father's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, Christ, had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He has spoken to us finally through his Son. It doesn't say, now hang on for some more. It does talk about Joel and there'll be dreams, but those at the end. At the end. And when does Christ return? Soon. Now, I don't want you to think this passage is very complex. It's very simple. It is very simple. Godless men and godless women don't see anything wrong with godless behavior. Because they reject the authority of our Heavenly Father. Their view of morality is shaped by a godless view of morality. There is no absolute right and wrong. There is no thing that I can stand on and stand firm and say, this is right, absolutely, because they're defining it by what they like and what they don't like. So there is a changing definition of right and wrong. And we have seen, just in in the two examples I gave, in in drugs and in euthanasia, If you want to change morality, you can do it in that fashion. Get enough people on your side. Simply what has been wrong for thousands of years is now right. The danger is the opposite as well. What has always been considered right may be defined as wrong. 
So what we take for granted and say as believers, this is right, this is the moral teaching of our Heavenly Father, this is what he says we are to do, how we are to live. Enough people decide that they want to change the law and make that wrong. Then the question for us is where will we stand? Will we stand on the eternal word of God? Or will we be tossed about by every wind and wave and follow the morality of society? Let's pray. Lord, you, you warned through Peter that the false teachers were coming. Jude says, and he warns the people that he's writing to, the false teachers are here. This is what they look like. This is what they do. These are their characteristics. Here is how they have been, they've demonstrated these things in the past. Here is what they do now. Pay attention. Lord, we live in a society that the lines can be very blurry sometimes. Right can be turned into wrong. Wrong can be redefined as right. That's if we trust in the wisdom of men, if we trust in what society would say is right and wrong. You have given us these things that we may base our lives upon. You have enabled us through the Holy Spirit to understand them and cling to them and live them out, even in the face of persecution or struggle. Lord, we pray that we would be mindful, aware of godless men, false teachers, aware of when right and wrong are in danger of being redefined and reversed. We pray that we would be bold and unafraid to stand on what you say is right and stand against what you say is wrong. But in all things, demonstrating Christ to a world that so desperately needs to hear the message of life. So we pray this in his name. Amen. Our hymn is number 442. Oh, Master, let me walk with thee. Let's stand as we sing 442.
as our hymnist says, and as Paul writes, there's a peace only that our Heavenly Father can give, and it is the peace that passes all understanding. Heavenly Father, send us out that we might live in this, that we might know it, even in the face of adversity, the face of persecution, whatever we would face out there, Lord. Let us rest in your peace, knowing your hand is upon us, knowing you have called us for your purposes and for your glory, that we might live and walk in ways that reflect the grace that you have given to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.